This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Dan Esposito, who leads the Solar Fuels Lab at Columbia Engineering, and is also the co-founder of the clean hydrogen startup, SHIP. Dr. Esposito will explain solar fuels, which are essentially energy sources that can be created using the unlimited energy of the sun and can store energy orders of magnitude more densely than batteries can, but without the climate harm done by petrochemicals. In particular, he will talk about why hydrogen is such a promising replacement for fossil fuels, for specific applications such as fuel cells for vehicles, or as a precursor material for industrial manufacturing. He'll also cover how his startup can produce hydrogen directly from one of the Earth's most abundant resources, seawater, without damaging the environment, and while also creating useful co-products which can be used to extract magnesium and carbon dioxide from the same seawater as well. We'll also talk about what he learned on his one-year sabbatical at the company, the resources Columbia has to get startups going, and the advice he gives his students about how to build successful careers as scientists and as entrepreneurs. Dr. Esposito, thank you so much for joining us today. Maybe we can start off by uh, talking about solar fuels. So I know your lab focuses on solar fuels. It's actually the Solar Fuel Lab at Columbia. Uh, but I'm not sure all of our listeners would be familiar with what a solar fuel means. So maybe let's start there. Sure. Um, my pleasure to be here. So thanks a lot for having me on here today. So to that first question, I'll start by simply and very generally defining the solar fuel as a chemical or fuel that can be made from a low energy reactant using energy that's derived from the sun, either directly from the sun or indirectly. Uh, for example, if one were to use electricity that's obtained from a solar photovoltaic panel, which generates its power from the sun, that's also okay as well. The oldest known solar fuel is actually biomass. So nature figured out how to make solar fuels hundreds of millions of years ago. Um, plants are able to take low energy reactants, specifically carbon dioxide and water, and make these energy dense hydrocarbons powered by the sun. Um, in my field, my lab and other people um, in the field of solar fuels uh, target other reactions. One of the most commonly considered solar fuels is hydrogen that can be made from water splitting. But there's also a lot of interest in also starting with carbon dioxide and converting that into energy dense chemicals or fuels, uh, things like carbon monoxide or methanol. There's a lot of interest in, in my lab in this field in general in converting that solar energy into fuels because fuels have advantages for certain applications over using electricity directly. Uh, for example, fuels have very high energy density, which makes them really valuable for storing them during times when the sun is not shining, when the wind is not blowing, or if we need to transport energy over really large distances. A lot of the hydrocarbon fuels that society has come to know and love today um, have energy densities that are at least order magnitude higher than the energy densities of batteries, which is the, the conventional brute force approach to storing electricity. And don't get me wrong, batteries are and will continue to be really important during our energy transition as we go forward. 
but there are a lot of applications like heavy transit, certain industry sectors where batteries just aren't going to cut it. They don't have high enough energy density and they can't be used as precursors for a number of different industrial processes. So if I understand correctly, uh, the, you know, in a battery, you've got an energy source that you can simply plug into or, or use to power a, power a piece of equipment. If you're talking about the fuels can pack far more energy into the same amount of space, but presumably they then would need to be utilized on the other side. It's, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you're, there's still a conversion step that needs to happen to get the fuel mm-hmm. back into energy at the other side. Yeah. So there's an energy efficiency factor that comes into play here as well. But because that energy density is so much higher for a lot of these fuels compared to batteries, you can tolerate a lower energy conversion efficiency. So if you take one of the largest oil tankers that's regularly used to transport crude oil across oceans, those tankers can hold over four terawatt hours worth of energy. And by comparison, in the U.S., the total amount of grid-scale battery storage is around 25 megawatt hours. So there's about 200,000 times more energy packed into that single ship, a very large ship, but a single ship (laughs) compared to all of the grid-scale battery capacity that we have in the U.S. right now. So maybe you can make this come alive for us a little bit. Give us an example of what what of an example of a of of a kind of solar fuel that you've been experimenting with in your lab. And if we were to encounter this out in the wild, you know, is this uh, the size of a loaf of bread? Is it the size of a car? Is it the size of a ship? Like, how would we? What might this look like if we found it? Mm. The the solar fuel that we have investigated the most. A lot of other people in the field are also really interested in is hydrogen made from splitting water um, using electrochemical reactions. And we and a lot of people are really excited about hydrogen, not only because it is a carbon free source of or an energy carrier, rather, because but because it's really versatile. You, You can use hydrogen for a really wide range of applications whether that's a hydrogen fuel cell uh, vehicle or as a precursor chemical for making industrial chemicals like ammonia or methanol at really large scale. Scale is the other thing that you were asking about here. How large do these solar fuels generating systems need to be? And to have an impact, they need to be huge. They need to be very large. Um, One example that just crossed my radar recently. It's in a a New York Times article. They were talking about plans in Western Australia where they have massive mines for producing iron ore and other minerals. And they're planning currently these operations rely very heavily on oil um, and coal to run. Um, But they have agreements between a bunch of mining companies, a bunch of energy companies to convert a really large area of land. I think the land area was around eight times the size of New York City that will be covered in solar panels. They'll also have a lot of wind turbines as well. And they're going to funnel all of that renewable electricity into producing hydrogen that in some cases can be used directly as a fuel for those mining operations but in others can be combined with CO2 to produce hydrocarbon fuels. 
that can also be used as well. So Dr. Esposito, if the work in your lab is successful, um, what are you really competing against in the end? One of the things that we're competing against is hydrogen that's produced from fossil fuels. So today, over 95% of the hydrogen that the world uses is hydrogen that's derived from steam methane reforming. And so you start with, with methane, which is four hydrogen atoms per carbon atom, and that's converted into hydrogen and CO2. So this process releases massive amounts of CO2 in the production of that hydrogen. In the US, where we have a lot of methane, you can produce hydrogen at approximately $1.50 per kilogram of hydrogen, where that kilogram of hydrogen has the energy equivalent of a gallon of gasoline. So in order for renewable hydrogen or quote unquote green hydrogen that's derived from water electrolysis using renewable electricity to be able to compete with this hydrogen, this quote unquote gray hydrogen that's produced by steam methane reforming, it's really important that the technologies used to make green hydrogen are able to produce it at a cost that's around or below $1.50 per kilogram of hydrogen. Recognizing this, the U.S. Department of Energy has set a goal as a part of the Hydrogen Shot initiative for researchers to, to develop clean hydrogen technologies, such as water electrolysis, that can produce hydrogen at under $1 per kilogram by the year 2030. So in order to achieve that goal, there are a couple of things that need to happen. One of them is that you need really low cost electricity from renewable resources. Fortunately, that's already happening, largely through economies of scale. The price of electricity from solar photovoltaics and wind has come down at a tremendous rate in recent years, and it's going to continue to go down. However, what also needs to happen is for the costs of electrochemical reactors called electrolyzers that produce hydrogen from water electrolysis, that cost also needs to come down quite a bit by at least around 80% or so in the coming years in order to hit that hydrogen shot target. So in my lab, we're thinking a lot about alternative electrolyzer structures and materials that can go into these electrolyzers that can allow for achieving some of those cost targets. So is this fundamentally what you're trying to do in your startup ship, which by the way, if people are trying to find it is SHYP, HY for hydrogen. And by the way, the, the, full, the full acronym spe spelled out is seawater hydrogen production. So you, you had that middle part, right? The H and the Y is for hydrogen, but we are specifically working on technology to produce hydrogen from abundant seawater and brine. Yeah, so the, the origins of SHIP and, and the, problem that, the problems that, that SHIP are trying to solve re relate not only to energy, but also the water crises that are out there in a lot of areas of, of this world as well. Um, and so as, as a lot of people know, we, we have the vast majority of water on this planet is, is salt water uh, rather, than, rather than fresh water. 
So at Chip, there's a lot of companies and potential customers that we have spoken to that are really excited about the possibility of a technology that can produce hydrogen directly from seawater, avoiding the need for the precious fresh water that they have in those areas. Um, one application that we see a lot of interest in is from operators of offshore wind turbines, where they have a whole lot of seawater around, but, but not fresh water. Um, a lot of wind turbine operators end up being somewhat limited in terms of the ability to transmit electricity generated offshore to, customer, to customers on land. So they're, they're really interested in the possibility of using the electricity that they're not able to send through, through cables to split water to produce hydrogen. But a major challenge is that producing hydrogen from seawater presents a lot of risks and challenges from a durability standpoint. Because in seawater, there's a lot more than just water. You have a lot of ions that can poise, compose within seawater. There's not just water. There's also a lot of impurities and salt ions present that can be really problematic for electrode materials and for membranes that are present in conventional membrane-based electro electrolyzer devices. And if you don't feed these conventional membrane-based electrolyzers with ultra-high-purity water, it can substantially cut their lifetime short, which completely throws off the economics. At SHIP, we're trying to develop from the ground up electrolyzer technology, not only the electrolyzer, but also the system that it's incorporated into that can allow for direct seawater electrolysis without doing any desalination. So there's a potential competitive advantage in terms of the durability of the technology. Another potential advantage that's very important to the business model that we're pursuing is the generation of co-products from seawater. So here we are trying to leverage an ability that we have with these membrane-free electrolyzers to produce not only hydrogen, but also to produce acid and base and to do things with the acid and base, such as harvest materials from seawater. One example that we're quite interested in is the extraction of magnesium from seawater. Magnesium is the fifth most abundant dissolved ion in seawater. When you add up all that magnesium, boy, there, there's a lot of it out there. And there's a lot of value associated with that magnesium as well. We're also very interested in being able to extract carbon dioxide from the ocean. This is a process called direct ocean capture, which can be driven by acid produced by our electrolyzers. So collectively, if you're able to use the same device and the same system to not only produce hydrogen, but also to produce these other valuable co-products at the same time, that brings with it a really nice value add. You know, on one hand, I can imagine that the work on this could, could have just continued in your academic lab at Columbia. 
and you could have kept publishing papers and pushing this forward. But in this case, you decided to start a startup company to pursue the opportunity. And not only that, but actually to take a sabbatical from Columbia to go lead this startup during the launch year. And so I'm curious, maybe you could tell us a bit about what was your experience like launching a startup? And why did you feel like this opportunity merited this startup and the, a year of your life um, after so many years in the academic research rooms? Yeah, thanks for, for asking this question. I mean, for, for me, I've always been really passionate to about working on technology that can potentially make a difference out there. And this project involving membraneless electrolyzers that we started back in my first or second year at Columbia was a bit more on the applied side of things than some of the other projects that we're working on. So it naturally lent itself to consider pursuing in terms of development of a commercial product. But you're absolutely right. I could have continued doing research on this topic within my lab and hope that somebody else picked this up um, com commercially. Um, and for me, um, this story or journey with, with SHIP started around 2018 or so. We had published one of our first papers on membraneless electrolyzers for water electrolysis, specifically talking about seawater electrolysis. And there was this guy, Carl Fisher, who had reached out to me and was very interested. He saw a popular press article that had been written up based on this journal article that we had published. And he's really big into impact investing. And he had approached me, asked me if I had any interest in trying to commercialize the technology. So it, it took a while for us to get up and started up and started and a lot of convincing on the part of, of Carl's part. But we ended up eventually after a year of going back and forth, applying for grant funding through the NYSERDA Power Bridge program, which is an accelerator program that is specifically focused on trying to help academics to translate technology from their lab to the real world through the formation of startup companies. So through that Power Bridge program, some other programs that we participated in, uh, we were able to really focus in on kind of developing the technology from these small dinky little devices that we had worked on up until that point to larger devices. And then also really think about the system and the business model and the angle that we would take with this startup company. So through that power bridge program, that was a, a really important um, part of giving us a jump start with, with ship. Uh, we got held back a little bit due to the, the pandemic that, that definitely damp dampened things a little bit, but we were very persistent in pursuing additional funding. And we're finally able to close a seed funding round in fall of 2020 that seed funding round allowed us to hire four additional people and to open up our own lab space. So SHIP has its own lab currently in Wilmington, Delaware, at the Delaware Innovation Space. Uh, we opened up this lab space in 
believe it was June of 2021. And the timing of this was really great for me because it coincided with a sabbatical year. Um, I actually took a sabbatical in the first half of the year. And in the second half of the year, I took a leave of absence from the university to work directly with SHIP. So um, during this time on the leave of absence, I was able to work a lot with the, the first employees at SHIP, including a really fantastic CTO that we hired, Dr. Lauren Greenlee. So she's been the real uh, leader of, of SHIP in terms of technical development since, since we um, hired her. So really grateful to have her on the team. Those first people are just so important. We have a couple of other really fantastic um, engineers that were first hires on the team as well. So during those six months, a lot of my effort was focused on translating the knowledge that I had about this membrane-free electrolyzers to the rest of the team, although it was also a really great learning experience for me in a number of other ways as well. I was also able to use some of my time with SHIP to actually get in the lab and get hands-on experience with building prototypes and really thinking about scale-up from individual small dinky cells into multi-cell stacks, which within the next year or two, uh, we want to be able to demonstrate at the scale of uh, approximately a mini fridge for pilot scale. So in addition to thinking about scale up, I was also able to do a lot more techno-economic analysis and thinking about system designs in ways that we academics normally aren't able to, or at least don't have the time to do with the typical lower technology readiness level projects that we have in our university labs. And it's interesting too, because you mentioned that a lot of, you were drawing a distinction, I think, between why being deeply involved in the launch of the startup gave you these opportunities. Do you think that wouldn't have been, you know, the traditional path for an academic entrepreneur, at least in our experience at Columbia, in the vast majority of the 25 or 30 startups we launch every year, the faculty member stays at the university and a postdoc or a graduate student would go off to help launch the startup until there could be a permanent CEO found. Um, do you, do you find that like being there and hands-on and full-time at the company was a productive experience for you? And is this something you'd recommend most entrepreneurs do if given the opportunity? Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I think it was a productive use of my time. There are certainly opportunity costs and sacrifices that were made. I'm very grateful um, to not only the university for allowing me to do this, but also my, my family uh, for allowing me to make a lot of trips down to Delaware to carry out some of this work and work directly with the the team. So there were you know, personal sacrifices involved, but I feel like I was able to develop a lot in, as, a, as an individual based on new skills and knowledge that I was able to obtain. I feel like I was also able to translate a lot of knowledge to the team and help to get them to the point where they're really not only standing on their own, but moving forward at a really great pace. It's, it's excited, exciting to see them you know, off and you know, um, moving forwards towards a, towards a pilot plant. Um, I also hope that this experience and the perspectives that I've gained from 
taking this leave of absence might also put me in a better position as an advisor and a mentor of Columbia students to help those students who are entrepreneurial minded to similarly pursue, pursue launching their own startup companies or um, to acquire the skill sets that will make them valuable employees if they go and work for a smaller size company as well. And so I, I would certainly encourage other faculty members who are really interested and motivated to see their, their technology have an impact in the real world to take that six months or so of a sabbatical year to consider starting up a company or working with a startup company. It, it was a really valuable experience to me. And when you look especially in, in this area of climate technology, and the clock, the clock is ticking. Uh, the International Panel on Climate Change says that we need to reach net negative by something like 2050 or so. And that does not leave us a lot of time. When you look at the typical development time associated with going from a low technology readiness level or TRL value of one or two to a commercial scalable product that's actually going to impact our energy system. So I think we need a lot of our best and brightest minds to, to, to put more effort into trying to translate some of these clean technologies out there into the real world. It's not for everybody. It's certainly not for the, the faint of heart. Um, and we also need to continue to have bright minds thinking about some of those early stage concepts that will be the seeds for technologies that 50 to 100 years from now as well. Yeah, the, the, the potential to transform society is incredibly high in when you're working on climate-related work. I mean, similarly, in a lot of the other areas of science that are done at Columbia, and the, the passion is kind of, the passion you have for that is, is pretty evident. I actually, that raises a question for me, which was, you've been a chemical engineer your whole academic career. Did you always know you were going to be a chemical engineer? And did you always know you would be applying that towards climate solutions? Or was this an evolution in your, uh, in your personal passions? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. For me, it, it all really started with energy and the environment. And say, gr growing up, um, my, my, my father is somebody that always really cherished the outdoors and, and the environment. And I think he instilled that in me. And based on that, I became increasingly aware in high school that climate change and the need to advance sustainable energy was going to be one of the biggest challenges of our time. And I just, I found it fascinated and I wanted to be in the middle of that. So that was a really key motivator for me as I went off to college. And I didn't know exactly what the best discipline or major was going to be for me to achieve that goal and best position myself to have an impact. So in my, my freshman year, my undergraduate studies at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, I scheduled meetings with faculty members from different engineering departments. Okay, so I knew engineering was probably going to be the way to go. And I liked, liked math, I liked chemistry and, and physics, but was also aware that there were a number of engineering disciplines that were doing some important 
work that aligned with sustainable energy technologies. And so that's why I reached out, set up the, these interviews with faculty from different departments. And the, the first meeting or two that I had spoke with faculty members and they were happy to talk to me about some examples of research projects in their department that aligned with sustainable energy. And then I, I met with a professor from Lehigh University, Kamal Tizla, and I and I told him my my spiel, what my interests were, and he just he he, he looked at me from across the table and, and pointed at me, and he said, "You're going to be a chemical engineer." And he just he said it so <laughs> confidently, <laughs> I said I couldn't argue with him. It's like okay, sign me up. Right. So that that was you know, the 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 start of it for me, and I ended up. Uh, after earning my bachelor's degree in chemical engineering, went on to University of Delaware to get my PhD in chemical engineering. And as as you know um, from the from the introduction, I'm now a professor of chemical engineering as well. And uh, very happy that ended up. <laughs> I was going to say that I made that decision, or maybe it was Professor Tizla who made that <laughs> decision because the the. The, the core principles, the foundations of, of chemical engineering are, are subjects like thermodynamics and kinetics and, and transport are just relevant to so many different energy technologies. I work specifically in the field of electrochemical and solar energy conversion, uh, but these um, Foundations are, are also important for a number of other energy conversion technologies, ranging from catalysis to um, batteries and more. That that all sounds great. I, you know, I when I am not a scientist myself, as my listeners know, but I when I listen to your path of you know following your passion for the climate into the into the the exploration of the different avenues by which you can have an impact on the field, and then your undergraduate in chemical engineering going to your PhD program in chemical engineering, becoming a chemical engineering professor, and then launching what what is off, you know, it sounds like a great startup that is now off to the races and raising funding and doing well and has full-time employees. And now you're back at Columbia. You know, that's quite a success story. And and yet I also can imagine that being pretty intimidating for an undergrad or graduate student who's trying to follow in your path. And yet I watched there's a there's a student in your lab, uh, Daniela Fraga, who has quite a popular TikTok. Um, covering her work in your lab. And I have to say, watching those, it seems like fun. Like, it seems like a really great environment. What kind of an environment have you tried to set up in, in the lab for your students? In terms of the environment that I try to promote in, in the lab, the, there are a, cup, a couple of things. I mean, you, you use the word f fun. I, I think that, that's one thing. Definitely try to try to promote an environment where... We are very, very much enjoying what, what we're doing. Yeah, the, the topic that motivates a lot of the projects that we have is, is quite serious. And, and we work really hard to try to move the, the technology forward. But you may as well have a good time while, while you're working on some of these tricky problems as well. And related to that as well, these are tricky as putting it mildly some of the things that that we're trying to do are really challenging and if, if it was really easy to make these solar fuels technologies really efficient and durable and low cost somebody would have done it before so it, it's really hard for anybody as an individual 
to quickly get up to speed in this interdisciplinary field and have a huge impact in just a couple of years of time. And, and so it's really important in my mind that I have a lab where we are working as a team to help each other out. I, I love to see it when older students are training and helping out younger, younger students. Um, we've also been fortunate to have a couple of projects where we've been able to have collaborations, um, not only within our group, but also with other groups at Columbia and groups outside of the university as well. I think there's so much that we can do together that's really hard to do as a single individual. And when you think back to young Dan Esposito and giving yourself some advice when you were thinking about your career in the field, what advice would you give younger students um, uh, thinking about pursuing a career like yours? I'd say first piece of advice is to follow your nose and, and stay curious. There, there's a lot of different possible career paths that, that one can pursue um, even within chemical engineering specifically. I think early on, it's great if you can try to get exposure to a lot of different subsets of a given field and, and different applications and really keep an open mind to what direction that you might go. I mean, early on, it's it's really about the skill sets that you're going to, to learn. If the, the critical thinking skill sets are really important in addition to some of the subject matter skill sets. But then on top of that, you know, pay, pay attention, take some mental notes about certain subfields or, or applications that strike you as being particularly promising or, or that you just really in, enjoy working on the, the problem sets relating to that area and, and try to pursue them further. See, see where it takes you while still maintaining flexibility to pivot and go in a new direction. If you find something else that seems like an even better opportunity or even more exciting in some way, shape or form. And a, a second piece you know, uh, of advice that I'll give students is, is definitely to persist <laughs> through the through the the challenging times because th there certainly will be times where it just seems like nothing is working, um, even though you're putting hours upon hours into making your making your project work. Um, being able to you know think critically and also creatively when those times come um, without getting down on yourself is just so important for overcoming those those challenges and, and and making the most of the opportunity that you do have so that you can move on then to that next project to that next stage in your career so we're so happy to have you back at Columbia and back to work in the solar fuels lab. And I, speaking of, you know, hard problems and having to endure through failure, um, I imagine there's some new challenges you want to take on that are separate from the work you did at CHIP that are kind of the next windmill you want to go after. And, and so what's on your plate that is the next big challenge for your lab? So there, there are a couple of different new, new projects and directions that we're looking to go, but uh, one in particular that immediately comes to mind relates to a new DOE-funded center that we're involved with, the uh, Ensemble for Photosynthetic Nanoreactors. Um, this, this approach for 
solar hydrogen production is quite different from what SHIP is trying to do and that it is seeking to develop integrated all-in-one solar fuels generators that simultaneously absorb sunlight and use that energy to produce fuels within that single integrated device or reactor. So that's as opposed to this more conventional short-term approach that SHIP and other companies are taking where they'll use that renewable electricity from solar photovoltaics or wind turbines to power these electrochemical reactors, these electrolyzers. Instead, this is an integrated device. And this is really challenging to do because now you need a device or a technology that's not only efficiently and durably facilitating these electrochemical um, transformations, but it also needs to absorb sunlight and transfer that energy to these catalytic active sites somewhere in the device. So there's a lot going on at the same time, just like in the same way that plants figured out how to do photosynthesis in, in, a, in a leaf. And, and so this is, in my mind, very much going to be an intermediate or long-term technology. But if we and others in the field can move these integrated solar fuels generating approaches uh, for, forward, they have potential to be able to produce solar fuels like hydrogen at even lower cost than some of these indirect approaches like photovoltaic electrolysis that I mentioned earlier. And in order to achieve those low costs and to make these integrated solar fuels generators efficient and, and durable and selective, it's going to take a combination of new materials and device engineering, including chemical engineering. Got so it's going to really take an, an interdisciplinary team approach to move these integrated solar fuels generators forward. Uh, that's very cool. Well, Dr. Esposito, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Warren. Thanks again for having me on. 